Cool. Cool. So. An Austrian and an Italian enter into a podcast. Yeah. None of us are native English speakers, so good luck to you. We might throw in the question on German word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get used to it. <laughs> so this idea came up uh, at a party, right? Yes, New Year's party. Which kind of New Year's party was that? Well, it was Tibetan New Year, which keeps changing its date all the time, so it's hard to pin down. So it was 2012, somewhere <clears throat> after the Tibetan New Year, which was 22nd of February this year. And we had a small party to kind of start the new, the new year, so... We, yeah, we had some food, some wine, and we were talking about podcasts. We both like podcasts, and we listen to podcasts a lot. And you came to me and said, we should, we should do one. <laughs> yeah, we should do one. And I thought, okay, but I thought we should record somebody. Say, no, 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 you and I should talk. <laughs> yeah, it should be funny. <laughs> So for once, we wouldn't be the geeks behind the mixer. Yeah, I think we can... Manage to do both, huh? We can do some entertainment. So the idea was to basically do it a bit like a conversation you would have at a party. Mm. Um, a kind of private party with people around you that you like. Mm. Which in our case is basically nobody else but Which us. <laughs> No, but you you kind of, uh, we kind of dove into it uh, partially because uh, of the very good wine we just, we were sipping. And uh, you said to me something quite striking. Uh, well, you said something you're interested in, in integration in general. Uh, and we will get to it, I guess, to say integration of what and what it means. Uh, but very quickly you said, I have no idea how people do it. Uh, and I said, what do you mean? I don't know how people... Uh, maybe we have to backtrack a little bit. We will do a lot of backtracking. But yes, we kind of constantly start new topics and then we kind of keep you hanging there for half an hour while we explain what we actually mean. So, to start with, we are both Buddhist practitioners. Watch your mouth. Supposedly. Um, and I'm actually currently living at the retreat center. I have a, a kind of small chalet where I'm living in and I'm participating in all the practices which happen in the huge Tibetan-style temple there. And yeah, I was kind of wondering, for me, it's relatively easy to kind of maintain, maintain some form of practice. You have a whole framework, you have daily schedule, when the group practice happens in the temple, where you should go. You have, we have relatively little influence from outside. I mean, nobody here is talking about French politics or, or the latest car model or things like that. So it's a relatively protected environment, which does help when you're trying to maintain a a practice of meditation. And I was, I kept wondering over the last years, kind of how do people do this outside when you live in a normal world with a normal job? How do you do? How do you practice? And how do you integrate your practice in your daily life? It's interesting because When I was, when I was, um, driving up here, um, I thought about a similar question, but from a different point of view. And I thought, how do people do it? And for me, the, it was, how do you go through life without a spiritual path? You know, because I was, sometimes I think, you know, am I, am I weird? I, I think. Partially, yes. You know, why am I kind of uh, involved in a, not only in a spiritual path, but I'm working for a spiritual organization, uh, uh, the same as Robert here. 
And I was thinking, how do you, how do you, how do you do that? I was listening to um, uh, David Allen on my iPod, and he was talking about you know getting things done and stuff like that. And I was thinking, wouldn't that be your first thing you want to, you want to clear out of your mind and make a decision about what is this all about? For me, it's like uh, that was the kind of question I had in my mind. How do you do it? Like, how do you do it if you don't have a practice? If you don't have you don't even try to find answers uh, or decide that there are no answers to be found. So for me, that's that's a big question. Because you can go through, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talking about motivation and what you should do and, and how to be more productive and stuff. But... Uh, without uh, having addressed the, the question, all right, so is there a, an overarching uh, mission in my life, apart from whatever I do in terms of work, my friends, family? Uh, how, can you, how can you engage in any of those without having uh, tried to solve that? So I think one of the things that, that for me would be interesting to do in, in, in this type of uh, discussion and uh, if we are lucky we will manage to include other people with uh, more or less uh, higher profile than we have what, what it's interesting for me is what do people who who are functional and achieve things in life yet or maybe even because of that have a spiritual dimension or a view or a plan for their life um, I want to talk to them about that what is, you know, if they meditate or do stuff like that, is that just to calm down before they go to work or after they came back? Or is there something more to it? And I have the feeling there's a lot of people out there that's a lot to say or would like to say a lot, but they don't necessarily they always find uh, a safe place to share those insights. So you kind of come from the point of view uh once you've decided that's the thing I want to do, how do you manage to make it happen in a world that obviously doesn't necessarily... Uh, that's not encouraging yeah. spiritual practice. That's not really valuing it or kind of seeing it as necessary. So I'm, I'm wondering how people do. And I mean, I think it's quite relatively easy to, kind of, to connect to a spiritual path or a spiritual tradition and to start practice, but then how do you sustain it? Mm. Because I think starting is something new. It's like starting a new diet or I don't know, whatever you do, getting a new car and driving mm. around in a, in a new car. There's the novelty, there's a new excitement, kind of you have to test out things. But then after a while, you might also have some kind of initial success stories, things that change, you have good feelings by your practice. But then after a year or two, I think success comes not very often and very hard. And I'm wondering what kind of keeps people going to actually continue. And it is a, a daily practice that, that people do, that people maintain despite all their busy lives. So what do they get out of I mean, my guess is they are getting out of it. They're getting something out of it. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't do it. And yeah, I'm wondering if it's really so evident for people that practice really does something, transforms their lives, mm. their circumstances, that you really maintain it. I mean, like if you go jogging every day, yeah. I think after a while you kind of become addicted to the endorphins or whatever mm. body produces while you're doing your sports. So, and you get an instant good feel, yeah, high energy. But with meditation, that's not necessarily the case. You might meditate every day for two months and have no good experience whatsoever. That uh, seems to vary a lot. There are people who kind of really love it and seem to get a huge amount of endorphins 
out of sitting and relaxing their mind. And another group of people, they seem to very quickly discover uh, well, they find it difficult. There's a lot of resistance, there's stuff coming up, as people say. There's, um, for me, for example, is sometimes if I'm very, very busy and very, very un unfocused, the first element is um, almost this, you know, you feel that you're, you basically realize you've you been for a quite long time off <laughs> in terms of, uh, you suddenly, for example, I've suddenly realized, oh, I have this funny feeling in my chest or in my belly, which I was ignoring all this time. So the first thing you, you face yourself, your body, your mind, your emotions, and, um, and then you try to do the practice that you decided to do, uh, that might or might not, uh, directly address those elements. Yeah, I mean, normally you don't, you're not sitting down on your cushion to change, mm. to change whatever troubles you. I mean, in the end, most of the time you sit down and yeah, you're faced with mirror, with a mirror, with looking at yourself. Mm. And it's probably not very pleasant a lot of times. And yeah, your, your job is not to change it. I mean, your job is in some ways to look at it and to stay with it. So that because we understand practice as being part of a bigger picture, right? Like we do it every day, try to do it every day, but uh, it's not because you want to fix something there and then, is that? No, I think practice on its own is not really any better than any other kind of hobby or um, pastime that you do. And that's, I mean, that's very important for me that practice is just a means to, there's a long-term plan where you want to go, what you want to accomplish. And practice is a way to get there. But practice on its own, I mean, that's a little bit what I'm saying, that practice on its own, for me, it does not produce necessarily the feel-good mm. kind of, yeah, I need my daily shot of practice because then I feel really well and I can go off to work and be friendly to people. That's often not how it works. So practice itself doesn't give me this instant, will. it does sometimes, but it's not something I can count on. Mm. It doesn't give me instant relief or kind of, oh yeah, now I'm ready for the day I can face mm. whatever I have to face. And actually, I think a lot of times I, I have no idea why I practice. Mm. It's more like there's a commitment and there is a, yeah, I think it's just a commitment. I'm going to do this practice every day, no matter what. Mm. And that's what keeps me going much more than, than like the instant benefit. There are benefits, but it's hard for me to see them instantly. But you have an overarching, like, it's almost like, okay, sitting or doing practices on your to-do list might be your next physical visible action, but the project is something bigger. And without that, would you sit? Because I think, I think, let's be honest, there is, we are now in the time where bits and pieces of uh, integrated, bigger spiritual traditions of uh, very often from the East have been kind of a little bit take, um, broken down into elements and people like to use the one or the other aspect or technique isolated from the general body and they find it very helpful. Uh, but I know for a fact that's not you. Uh, this is part of a bigger project. Yes, the bigger it's definitely part of the bigger project, which I guess traditionally would you would call enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's definitely I find it. Well, that that's kind of. Maybe the second thing I'm 
I'm wondering. So the first thing I was wondering is how do people maintain a daily practice with a, with a normal daily life? And the second thing is would be how do people maintain a daily practice if they are not striving for some form of enlightenment mm. or some bigger goal? Because as I said, for me, I don't have the instant gratification. I mean, mm. it's not like you go to Amazon and you buy something and you get it delivered the next day. That's, That's not right. how practice works. <laughs> It's not an instant download. It has some long-term benefits. And I, I think it does. I mean, that's something I feel, but it does not get me to do this every day. Mm. I mean, I'm struggling every day to practice. So one of the questions is for those who don't do it as part of a bigger project, uh, with the goal of, of enlightenment, um, why are they doing it? Maybe is one question. The other, how do they manage to do it? Because again, it's, let's go back to the example of running. I guess not only you have, you know, the endorphins and all the nice things that happen when you do sport, but uh, there's also a number of supporting thoughts like, ooh, I will lose weight and therefore look better. Therefore, who knows what? Oh, I might live longer or I might have a better quality of life if I do that. I think those together with the instant instant gratification that by the way I don't I don't know what is the instant gratification I hate running <laughs> for, for just for the just for the sake of it I never managed to do it I've done sport in my life but they were always running to get either to get the ball or to uh, try to tackle somebody who had the ball or something like that it was never for the for the sake of it I never understood that um, Is that, is that enlightenment something that make you, or like your project or your idea of uh, moving towards that goal, ma does it make you a weirdo? Mm, I don't think it makes you a weirdo. It's definitely something which can occupy a big chunk of your life. Mm. Um but then other people occupy their lives with something else. Mm -hmm. So it's just, yeah, it does take up a decent amount of time. But then, yeah, I don't watch. I just watch less TV in exchange or well, let's I like read less books. So you still watch enough TV. I still watch some TV, I watch <laughs> some movies. That's but right. I find it often very difficult to actually find time for these kind of occupations because you put the big stones first in the, in the jar, famous example of the big stones, medium stone stones and so on. You decided this is important for me. So that is in, that basically is in the calendar is as an, it's in the unmovable. calendar. It's for me, this commitment is very important mm. for me. It's, and maybe that's just me, but for me, it's personally very relatively easy that when I have committed to something to do it, so if I have committed to do this every day, I will do it. Even I mm. might be falling asleep while I'm doing it, but I'm still going to do it. I've never committed myself to reading 50 pages of a book a day or watching two TV shows or watching three movies a week. I've never done this commitment. I have no commitments to, to follow the news. I do, but at the end of the day, you know, if I haven't watched... If I haven't gone to BBC website yet or to the New York Times or yeah. whatever, and I haven't practiced, well, practice is going to come first because mm. that's still something I have to do. And then I just have to go to sleep because I'm that tired. So mm. commitment is something that that makes makes these kind of things much, much easier. Is there a tool? I mean, before the commitment is you deciding to take the commitment, right? Yeah, well... Motivated by something else. Yes. And that's, of course, a different story. How do you get motivated? And, I mean, it's not like you wake up one day and you say, oh, gosh, I'm going to now commit to do one hour of practice every day mm -hmm. until I reach enlightenment. 
Definitely not. It's an ongoing mm-hmm. kind of develop development where you kind of start maybe with, yeah, I would like to practice a few minutes a day and you sit a few minutes a day mm-hmm. and then you don't do it for days and then you do it again and then slowly you build up maybe and you... Actually, I think it took, I don't know how long it po- probably took like five or ten years until I formed a commitment to a certain amount of practice every day. Actually, it did take ten years or something. How long have you been on, on this specific path? Well, now that's a bit of history. Actually, we haven't... We haven't even said what we're doing. Yeah, because we're going to track, backtrack. We're going to backtrack. So, um, <clears throat> well, this is a huge backtrack. So, which is not really necessary, but might be fun. So, we are following actually as a school in the in the Tibetan lineage of Buddhism. So, well, first of all, let's go back. So Buddhism is is basically a, a bad name that we give to people who follow the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha, who lived in India. David, do you probably know? You're the 2,500 years ago. 2,500 years ago. Probably 2,550 by now. Yeah. And taught people to meditate. And showed them that it's possible to reach a higher state of enlightenment. Mm. So that's the tradition we're following. But then, of course, history happened and a lot of Buddhist students kind of emphasized certain aspects of his teachings more than others. So in the end, you people started to categorize Buddhism into different practice, different lineages. And actually... Lineage is a very important term here, isn't it? Mm. That this is not like anything but invented. It was really like based on what your teacher had taught you beforehand and what that teacher's teacher had taught and so on. So basically, Tibetans, but I guess also other, I'm not an expert in non-Tibetan forms of Buddhism, but I guess they would do the same too. They are very careful and uh, I'm almost tempted to say proud to be able to track back uh, any teaching you receive in a human uninterrupted chain of teacher students back to the Buddha Sakyamuni. And by the way, this is not, we are not doing any kind of teaching activity here in this podcast. I mean, we are neither teachers nor anything else. This is just like, so if we make any mistakes, that's just our personal views. So. Mm. Disclaimer. Disclaimer, this is all. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing authorized here. We're not going to try to explain. Go to Wikipedia Buddhist, and check Buddhist if is correct. <laughs> so basically, we started out with the Buddha. <clears throat> then there were different lineages of teachings coming. And one of them made it into Tibet through an enlightened master. <clears throat> so a few enlightened masters, but one of them was Padmasampava, Guru Rinpoche. And he started the first school of Tibetan Buddhism, really, or established it solidly in Tibet. And that school still exists today and has been brought to us by Sogar Rinpoche. Yeah, and that's the teachings we follow. So it's all traced back to Buddha. And where did we start from? How? Where am I? Yeah. <laughs> you backtracked 2,500 years. Yeah, so <laughs> we did a big jump to the history back, and now we are back. Now we still have to go back in history. Um, so, Sori Rinpoche, who we normally call just plain Rinpoche, and in our kind of social club or Friend, circle of friends, when we say Rinpoche, everybody understands we mean Sori Rinpoche, and if we want to talk about some other Rinpoche, you put then, the name. then we put the, the name. name. That's and the way Tibetans do it, we have learned it from them, yeah. it's kind of cute. 
Yeah. And we do it that way. It's like, it's like, uh, uh, I don't have any example that makes sense. Like the queen. <laughs> you said the queen. If you're, if you're British, you mean the queen, the queen of England. I don't have to specify which queen. It's the one that's currently alive, mm. generally speaking. But and also the one of your country. Yeah. Because in Holland that they have another one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So yeah, so Sorry Rinpoche wrote a book in 1992, which is called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, which I picked up completely by accident. Um, I was just going to Boston to start studying there, and I stayed with a relative of mine who was also studying in Boston, something completely differently. I don't even know what she does. What did you study? I was, I went there to do a PhD in mathematics. And I was just basically staying in a flat until I had found my own flat. And she had a couple of books in her bookshelf. And one of them was Rinpoche's book. And I have no idea why I picked it up. Why I really kind of was curious. Maybe it was the title or I have no idea. Anyway, I started reading it. I got interested. Um, then I found my own flat and I bought the book from the library, from the university library for a few years. And then eventually <clears throat> I contacted RIGPA, which is Rinpoche's organization of, worldwide organization of centers. And I got a few tapes back then. It was audio tapes. There were no CDs. Oh, yeah. Yet. It was audio tapes. So I started to listen to a few of his teachings. And I tried out to practice a little bit. So all of that was back in around 93, 94, mm. probably. And I was studying mathematics. And yeah, then I went to the... There was a local center in Boston where we were basically just reading a, a bit of TBLD every week. It was one evening. We all came together. What is TBLD, Robert? Oh, yeah, TBLD. got <laughs> jargon. So TBLD stands short for the, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Which is this book you which picked is, up from the, book, yeah. from the uh, friends. From friends shelf, bookshelf. Mm. And we call it TBLD because... We try to do something else in our life than just pronouncing the book title all over again. <laughs> we calculated if you use it. <laughs> I never did the calculation, you but you could probably <laughs> kind of squeeze out a few extra hours of your life just by always saying the full title. So, yeah, I started practicing, sitting, and came together with a few others who were interested in the book. And... In in the spring of '96, that of course reveals kind of, you slowly kind of can guess how old I am, I guess. Mm. Um, so in the spring of '96, Rinpoche actually did a weekend in Canada, in the French province Quebec, in Montreal, and I went up there to see him because I was really curious. Mm. So I went there for a weekend. And which was kind of fun. It was, he did first a public talk, which was in a huge cathedral, old style cathedral, and about a thousand people there, 1,200 people, even people couldn't fit in, I think. Mm. And then he did a weekend at some kind of place rented from university, which mm. was also some kind of chapel or something. So, that was kind of fun and I was curious and then I heard about that he gives these kind of retreats in the summer in a place in the south of France. And of course at that point I was a student, I had no money, so I wrote to the retreat center which is called Lerbling, that's where we are currently. And found out that they have some kind of work-study positions where you could go and basically wash dishes or something else. And then you don't have to pay for 
they don't have to pay for, for the retreat fee or your food or something. Mm-hmm. And so you literally started washing the dishes. I actually literally started <laughs> actually washing the pots, not the dishes. I got the pots. So yeah, I came to the south of France for. I was planning to stay here for four weeks or even less, three weeks. Follow the teachings. But I had no idea even what that means, following teachings. I had mm-hmm. no, no no clue of anything. I mean, if I look back, it's amazing that I somehow came here and did all these things because I had no idea what I was doing. Is that something that you otherwise tend to do in life or was it a one-off? Come um, on, you're a rational mathematician. I'm a rational mathematician, <laughs> but I've done a few crazy things. <laughs> I like to travel. I've been around the world on bicycle. So I've done a few things, but not too many, Mm. not too many crazy things. Yeah. So I came here and I basically had to scrub lasagna or whatever Mm. ended up on the pots every day Mm. and got immersed in this kind of teaching atmosphere. And then I decided, oh, I'll stay a little bit longer. And actually, so in the end, I ended up staying here for two months. Mm. And then I went back to Boston to kind of follow Mm. my studies. And I got already somehow involved in the, in the whole audio world because Rinpoche has always put a huge emphasis on recording his teachings in the past possible possible ways. So mm-hmm. back then it was audio cassettes and dot tapes and some kind of crap analog videotape. Mm. So I already helped with that, not because I'm particularly trained in it, but I just was interested. And I went back to the US, then I went I came back to Europe after Christmas for a retreat in Germany. And, and I told people like, well, if you need somebody to help with the technical aspects, I'm available. I can. Mm. You're kind of a techie. I was, I was techie. Yeah. So a few months later, they called me and said, um, actually, we want to take you up on that. Would you mind coming over in a few weeks? So I gave it a bit of thought. It took me about an hour or so <laughs> to change your life drastically, <laughs> change my life. And I thought, this is exactly what I want. So. Mm. I stopped my PhD and came over here. And since then I have lived in and around Leibling and have been working, working for the RIGPA organization in all different forms. And I did manage to finish my PhD just before the millennium, I figured that I should finish it. So I did mm. finish it while working. And yeah, so there I am. So it has been a journey. You've been doing it for close to 20 years almost. No, it's 15, 15 years. More. 15 years. Mm. It's 15 years since I first... It's a little bit more. If I count the first yeah, that's right. the two book. years <laughs> when I was just reading the book, which mm. I didn't even... I didn't even have a copy of the book for mm. two years at least. Mm. I was just constantly had it on loan from the library. Mm. So then it's maybe 17 years by now. And which doesn't feel very long actually at all. Mm. So yeah, you go through a lot of things in that, that period. And there were definitely periods where I practiced much less or no practice almost at all. Mm. There were periods where I was working very intensely with, with teachings. There were periods where I was doing more normal work. I mean, management events were all kind of different mm. areas of work and and practice, so it's, well, we can talk about it later. What happens, what is the, when you say no practice at all, what, 
what I'm interested in, you know, is some point when you're in, involved in, uh, I guess, in any type of spiritual uh, type of uh, activity, um, certain phrase pop up in discussions and certain words start to have a certain quite loaded meaning. Practice, doing your practice tends to be one of the things that uh, have a life of its own. Um, but actually what it really means when you say, I'm not doing my practice technically, meaning you had a goal, you have a project, but you're not doing anything about it. Is that a one way to describe it? No, because, no, I don't think so. Also, I didn't say I was not doing my practice because it's not that long ago that I decided to have some kind of Daily practice. Daily practice, which goes with this commitment, really. Unless you have a commitment, it's not really that you have a daily practice. You're just kind of practicing here and there, and which is also good. I mean, there's no problem. Mm. So I never felt like I was not doing my practice. In some ways, the project was always very clear. This kind of goal of... Yeah, we have to talk about this at another point, but there's something about going, reaching enlightenment or benefiting beings or bringing other beings towards enlightenment. So that goal was always there, but for a long time, I think I was more thinking that I would kind of get closer to that goal through my work mm -hmm. and not so much through the practice. Because when we say practice, we mean formal formal practice, which is something... When we say practice in that context, we mean, we mean formal practice. You basically, in our case, most of the time we sit down in one place. You shut down outside distractions, so you're not listening to music mm. or reading a book while you're practicing. You're kind of focusing your mind... Yeah, that's what we mean. It's kind of some, there's some form, it has some beginning and some end normally. That's right. Um, and often interruptions in between. Cool. But it's interesting that you would describe it as something, you know, I'm interested in, in, in showing or understanding for myself that practicing is nothing extraterrestrial or other than many other things that we do. Because when you describe saying, you know, shutting down other distraction, trying to focus on one thing, is what you do when you watch a movie, you would normally not have the radio going at the same time. You would normally not talk on the phone while you're really into watching a movie, especially if you're at the theater. Yeah, definitely not. It, I mean, it is something that we do all the time in daily life. This kind of focusing on, on one task is that happens all the time. Mm. I think it's, I mean, that's actually in the Western world, something that's probably happens much more than even in the Eastern, in kind of ancient, mm. ancient civilizations. Because in the Western world, you have to kind of focus on some things exclusively, like whatever task you do at your job, kind of mm. pouring over a spreadsheet or writing an article or... People, code. people normally do this. Yeah, I mean, writing computer code is definitely... Mm one of the things where people really get really focused. But anything, also reading a book, mm. generally you kind of really put yourself 100% there when you read a book mm. and just follow it. But of course, practice is a little bit different because you're not, you're not focusing yourself onto something outside. Mm. There's no book, there's no screen, there's no video or whatever else you do mm. but you're just focusing on yourself in some mm. way but yeah it's not a it's a very normal form of doing things of doing things yeah mm. definitely that is because and that's again I think the reason why you said you didn't, you never felt you were not practicing. What you mean is that in your things to do that are related to the bigger project of enlightenment, 
formal practice is one of many. Um, I think we can I can say quite. Uh, I think we can say that uh, at least in the in the type of uh, spiritual path we uh, attempt to follow, almost anything can, should, and will eventually become part of your path. And actually has to. Mm. That, that was one of the biggest puzzles I had from the start. And I'm not sure if... I don't think it's written in, in a Buddhist book, but in one of his oral teachings, one of the first things I heard was like, if if you want to reach enlightenment, there is no other way than actually you have to practice 24 hours a day. Otherwise, you're not going to progress towards enlightenment. Mm. And I never understood, never really understood that in the beginning, and I'm still kind of, <laughs> still struggling with it. Yeah. But I think I understand a little bit more now, but this really, okay, there is a formal practice, which depending on whatever form of spiritual tradition you follow, there's different forms, but, but in the end, you have to find a way to transform everything you do into some kind of spiritual practice or some activity which mm. is imbued with a spiritual view. It's uh, an informing principle that goes through all, all your activities for a number of reasons, I guess. Um, you don't want to. You don't want to do. You don't want to go two steps back while you've taken one step forward, right? Uh, if your daily activities go in the opposite direction of what you're trying to achieve during meditation, especially in a life like you were saying at the beginning, you know, busy people who spend way more hours working, sleeping, than actually practicing, then you would never win. No, I think you would never win. But also. It is this much bigger view that not only do you need do you need to find some kind of spiritual aspect in anything you do, mm -hmm. but actually anything you do can have a spiritual aspect. That's right. So spirituality is not something you paint over stuff. It's a way to kind of uh, eventually uh, understand and interact and uh, plug into life reality yeah. it's not like okay that's life but on top of it I have all this set of weird beliefs and things I do that may or may not match with what's happening here yeah definitely I mean and also as you said you know you cannot win I mean if you are a master musician for you play violin or something mm -hmm. you probably end up training violin I don't know eight ten 12 hours a day? I don't know. Yeah, I, I heard that just to keep, to, once you're a, a, a proficient, level, level, yeah. even just 8 hours a day the, to keep it up. Yeah. yeah, To be a, you know, decent, not even a mega virtuoso, but like professional level, uh, solist. Yeah. So I think it's, it's similar with spiritual practice. Only you don't have to play violin <laughs> to do spiritual practice. You can actually wash the dishes or... Mm be on a phone call with somebody, anything can kind of be embedded in this view, mm -hmm. in this spiritual view, and can be imbued with some kind of qualities of spiritual practice. Do you think we can also say that the formal practice is a protected and pro protected uh, and protective environment in which we get to try out things uh, until we're so good at it that we can do it in the midst of anything else? Yeah, it's definitely a training ground. I mean, you could learn how to play violin uh, on a shaky airplane, but why would you start like that? Yeah, you wouldn't. No, I mean, at the beginning, you need some safe safe environment, and that, <clears throat> that's where this whole thing about no distractions mm. comes in, because we are so distracted anyway that that's right. at the beginning, you just have to shut down any kind of distractions to even start, to even get anywhere at all. I like that. I always found it fascinating, the, the word distraction, because 
sometime we talk about it as if uh, certain things would be inherently distraction but distraction is a is anything that has nothing to do with what you intend to do and b has the power or you allow it to take your attention away from what you're doing uh so nothing is per se a distraction your breath if you're trying to um meditate on the breath like meditate as in concentrating lightly putting your attention on your own breath well you just decide this is not a distraction you decide that's my focus and if the radio is going but you can keep your attention the radio is not a distraction because it doesn't have the power to distract you yeah distraction is just a relative term it's distracted from something else yeah and capable <clears throat> of so yeah. once and if you manage to develop the type of attention that is not easily distracted then the you know the yeah i mean you could even look at it from the opposite point of view that i mean if you look at the buddhist teachings they don't emphasize so much distraction they emphasize concentration that's right so your goal is to be concentrated and of course we talk about distraction number one because everybody's familiar with the word distraction mm. but actually the thing you want to achieve is concentration mm. which is the opposite of this of distraction mm. they just concentrate concentrate it onto something and again it's like relative term it's you concentrate it onto one thing mm. it's not so much Yeah, there's never concentration on the two things. You cannot keep two things at the same time in your mind. Apparently. Apparently. Um supposedly Julius Julius Caesar could supposedly, but nobody could really test that out, so. Uh, it's an open question if you managed or not. Well, I think it's um it's a similar question as in can a CPU of a computer really multitask? Uh, depending on the on the architecture of the CPU it might actually be able to divide itself into two or it's just a Pret- jumping it's between, just pretending to be two it's pretending to be two and it does it so quickly but well, actually nowadays of course yeah but back then when we, when the when the the architecture was different yes when i s- started getting involved with computers there was just pretending a single register where uh-huh. commands were worked on in the CPU so it was one thing at a time but quickly sometimes pretty quickly so and back then nobody was running more than one program on the computer right. at the same time anyway yeah for example if you in multimedia for example um you you want to watch a movie there are, there are tons of things happening right let's one of the main things there's audio and video and um you know audio you just need to spit out something every 44.1 or 48000 times a second in between you can do whatever you want yeah if you're quick enough so well that i don't know it, i don't have direct access in terms of experience but what, what i've learned in terms of uh uh how in the buddhist teaching uh this the psychology or the way we we apprehend is described is that we basically operate uh in in a very similar way we basically can only Actually not only can we concentrate on one thing but we, we can only perceive one thing at a time and we can only do it sequentially and actually of all the senses we have apparently we can only uh at any given instant have access to one and the way we we manage to have this complex uh holographic perception of reality is that we basically switch constantly between ear nose eye eye nose nose mouth and it's pretty interesting um I recently I I listen a lot to podcasts and sometimes I man uh, I managed to you know put myself in a <laughs> condition of uh reading something while listening to a podcast it doesn't work it doesn't work but to a, to an extent that it's if you really kind of try to recap what happened in the last 10 seconds while while you were trying to do that is as if almost really as if that sound disappeared completely um from your fields of of perception uh or at least you didn't have enough cpu capacity to process the content maybe yeah. the noise was there but not the 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 how do you call it uh not the, the process yeah not the processing of the yeah. 
whatever happens to your senses. Again, because again, Buddhist a little bit of Buddhist geekness. Uh, there's a sixth sense called the mind that is supposed to do the CPU work, and that's also only one. Uh, so you have your eyes, uh, and you have a sort of consciousness there that is supposed to make it all work, but it doesn't have any meaning as long as it doesn't talk to the sixth consciousness. Sometimes there are six, seven, and eight, but most simply you say six, uh, that makes sense of it. And that if, if that one is reading or is connected to your eyes, it can be corrected with your ears. Yeah. And that's something I think we experience all the time. Yeah. Oh, that's why it's actually kind of... Um, I think David Allen said, you know, something like, you know, there's no multitasking. Uh, there's just organizing your work so that you can go from one thing, uh, refocus very quickly from one thing to another. Yeah, that's what generally is meant by multitasking. But he was saying that if you do it properly, then nothing becomes a distraction in terms of work and 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 you're able to basically reconnect much quick quickly uh, to... He was giving this example, you know, uh, you're working in your office, your boss comes in and tells you to do something. What a big distraction. And he said, well, he pointed out, first of all, is well within his uh, expectation to be able to come to you and say, hey, can you take care of this thing? And B, it's up to you what to do with that information. If you put it, if you write it in a place where you have access to, uh, that's it. You can go back unless he wants you to do it right now. Then you would have to be able to stop what you were doing there and pick it up later. But otherwise, you just write down what he told you to do. Sounds simple, but many people don't do it. They keep it in mind and then keep on working what they were working before, but in a stressed way because part of their brain or their mind are now uh, utilized to keep that information afloat. Anyway, that's one of my the things that I find uh, fascinating, this whole productivity uh, element, because uh, in, in a way that is somehow similar to what you said, Robert, I also got sucked into... Uh, uh, or let's put it differently, I voluntarily, voluntarily decided to, you know, to help, uh, to help a bigger project with my life. I, I used to be a musician, a sound engineer, all this kind of stuff. And then there was this opportunity. I also read the book and everything to kind of put the time that I normally work into, uh, the time I can normally put into work or rather in a work that might or might might not have uh, a positive impact in people and in the world. I decided, okay, all these hours a day, I want to put in something that makes sense for me. And that, for me, was the thing that made more sense, a spiritual path, uh, and a way to make it available, understandable, and, and, and usable uh, for for the modern, modern guys and girls like me. And so, you know, I did different things. I did a little bit of... I came from sound engineering, so I actually started with you, helping you, uh, once you realize that you can only do so much during the day, at that time you were editing videos, mixing audios, producing CDs, producing all kind of stuff all alone, jumping from room from one room to another, while multiple computers were running with different multimedia projects. At some point you said, wait a minute, uh, maybe I need help. So I came in and I was doing the audio part of things while you concentrated more on well, general management but also kind of the video and the editorial aspect of it and the commercial aspect of it back then. <laughs> and uh, anyway, then slowly, slowly, I also started having more manage managerial kind of responsibilities. And so very quickly I realized I don't know how to do this thing. And not only I don't know how to manage other people, I have no idea how to manage my time, my attention. And so that's when then I discovered David Allen's GTD system, uh, Actually, it was somebody here in Ripa that uh, told me. I think you were already using it. Actually, you were already using it. No, I never. No, I've never used GTD. I've never read That's a book it. on GTD. Uh -huh. But use all the tools <laughs> that come from that. But you never read the book. No, I never read the book actually. No, and yeah, I because you reverse engineered it. You're too clever for, for for reading books. I picked up a few things here and there, and I kind of. Yeah, I came up with my own own system. But you use Inbox Zero, which is basically that's how you got into GTD because that uh, a derivative of GTD. Yeah, the term that comes from from Merlin Mann, and I did. I mean, I read it in some kind of article in a computer magazine. But mm. Inbox Zero, there was no reference to where it came from mm. or to GTD. But 
um, having worked in the organization for a couple of years and having been fighting with an inbox that there were always too many emails yeah. to deal with. The concept kind of was like, oh yeah, that sounds really like a relief. It's like if you were able to tackle and manage that aspect of your life, you would have a huge impact. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I remember when we were working together back then, uh, I had the same questions. Like I found myself uh, overwhelmed by emails. And, and uh, I remember you developing some very interesting philosophy around it, um, <laughs> which... I think you were so overwhelmed that you decided that, well, I'm not going to answer any email, but if people are really interested to know what they're asking, they're going to write at least once again, if not twice again, and then I'm going to engage with that, which probably you're still using, but I don't think you're as, <laughs> as extreme now because you have a system, right? It's again like the distraction. Emails as such doesn't mean anything. It's just the uh, words. Uh, and it could be a distraction, could be a super valuable information, could be something you don't want to hear. Uh, and as long as you don't, don't know that, uh, it's junk. But as, as, as David Allen points, uh, the, the if, if you knew that none, none of your inbox makes sense or is useful, that would be the easiest part. Or if you knew that everything is meaningful in the same way, that would be also very easy. But the problem is that it's a, it's a mishmash. <laughs> it's not clear. It's not clear. You need to process it to a certain extent, but processing it doesn't mean that you have to do necessarily what the email is asking you to do right now, right there. So you basically, what do you do? You pre-process it. I don't know how we got here. It doesn't matter. Because it's all about attention and distraction. Yes, it's about the, the concentration distraction. I don't think. I don't think that. I don't think that. Uh, you know, we. I've been exposed now for several years to the to the jargon and the way to describe uh, a spiritual path that that we that we imported from you know from Tibet. Who they themselves imported it from India, right? So there's a number of cultural kind of shifts in there. And what I'm interested in is um, a way to discuss or to show parallels between things we're doing anyway. And, you know, basically, I, I, I really believe that the whole spiritual path could be described as a project with tasks. Yeah. That's definitely true. There's a goal. There's an overarching goal. And there's a lot of small steps you have to take That's to right. get there. Mm. Sometimes you need to think about the goal again, re review it, update it, check if you're still connected with it. Um, and then there is a number of, of uh, sub-projects or actions that have to do like whether to improve your meditation, whether to improve the way you act in life or improve the, 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 view, the way you see things. You know, Buddhist geek might recognize in that the view, meditation, action, the three things that are part of the, basically the way we, the way we uh, go about the path. You know, sometimes you work towards meditate, meditating, sometimes you try to change the way you behave and sometimes you try to understand better how things are. Isn't it? Yeah. You need, you need all three and you're not going to get any of the all three. They are not kind um, they're not consecutive, consecutive, consecutive actions. It's not like That's you right. can first perfect your view. <laughs> once you got your view down, then you start meditating. And once you've finished meditation, finished meditation <laughs> then you start acting. It's not at all how no, it works. Because the, that's life. You you do all three and mm. you improve all three of them as you go along. Mm. And of course, they each one kind of supports the other two. I really believe, for example, that the, the distinctive feature of, of, uh, of, of the Buddha Dharma, which is the teaching, the Buddhist teaching from the Sakyamuni, is the view. Historically also, um, 
I think it's more or less accepted that uh, there's hardly anything he invented in terms of practices. Uh, you know, shamatha or meditation was pretty much established 2,500 years ago. The interesting thing is that Buddha Sakyamuni was like born in in the in in one of the most uh, prolific spiritual places in time, I think of all of all the known. Uh, history, which is you know India two thousand five hundred years ago, with hundreds of different schools and sub schools of hin- Hindu and non Hindu and uh, materialistic schools. Everything was available back then. Meditators of different schools, and he basically went through quite a lot of those um, approaches and learned how to meditate from other people, from people who have mastered the art of concentration and other things. And I think what happened there is that, <coughs> well, his goal was bigger. It definitely big goal. Had a very big goal. If you look at it, it's probably because of his big goal that we still talk about it. Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't happy with short or medium term. No, he solutions. was definitely reaching for the skies. Yeah, <laughs> reaching for the stars. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>